In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And during that time, we will say something called the Apostles' Creed, a summary of the faith that has been handed down through the centuries. And at the end of that, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so there's these words that come to us, reminder of resurrection of the body, which implies there is death, but also that there is life to follow after. And our story for today is much about that. It's a story about death and about resurrection. What it means to stand in the presence of death while also standing in the presence of the one who is life and resurrection. Life and death are appropriate themes as we enter now into the season of Lent. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent is a season in what we call the church calendar. All of us have calendars. Most of us have a calendar somewhere. Maybe you have it hanging on your wall. Maybe it's on your refrigerator. Maybe it's on your phone or your computer. A little book that you carry around. And sometimes we think of the calendar for us as running from January 1st through December 31st. But some of us have another calendar we run by. Teachers and students run by a different calendar, don't they? The year operates in a different way. It begins in the fall and goes through the spring. And then there's this time of eternal bliss called summer. And then it resumes again. Others of you have a different calendar. And it's marked by hunting and fishing seasons. When it goes from rifle season to bow season and musket and cannon and whatever else you hunt with. And so there's all these. And so, but depending on who you are and where you are, you have different calendars, different ways of marking the year. The church has also developed a way to mark the passing of time. It's a cyclical calendar, and the cyclical calendar reminds us of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because it says our life together, our life as individuals should be shaped around the life of Jesus. And so the church calendar begins with the season of Advent, four weeks leading up to Christmas, and Advent is a season of expectation, of waiting waiting for Jesus to be born, but also a time of expectation for Jesus to return again. And then Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus, and that rolls into Epiphany, the season of Jesus manifesting or displaying himself to the world. And then out of Epiphany, we enter into the season of Lent, this time of preparation, this looking forward to Easter resurrection, but it's a time of reflection, a time of penitence, a time of thinking about who we are, this last Wednesday, we marked the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday, this marking of ashes, which reminds us of that we are from dust, and to dust we will return. It's a season of reflection and looking forward to that time, and it's 40 days, not counting the Sundays, leading up to Easter. And on Easter, this Good Friday, we come to Good Friday and celebrate Jesus' death and his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And then on Easter Sunday, that God raised him from the dead, the beginning of the new creation, and we enter into the Easter season, and that's followed by Pentecost, this season in which we remember God poured out His Spirit and equips us to live as His faithful followers. And then that's followed by this season called the Ordinary Time, which is just a marking of we live in these days and we're living it out. And then it goes back to Advent. Again, where we're looking forward not only to the birth of Jesus, but to His second return. And so it's a way to mark the seasons and to think about who Jesus is and all that He's done and what He's done for us. And so as we continue on in this season, I invite you into the story that we're going to be looking at today. In John chapter 11, to be in the presence of death 
while being in the presence of Him who is the resurrection and the life. And so we're going to pick up the story right at the very beginning in John chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, there was now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So we're introduced basically to these characters and there's this city of town of Bethany. It's probably just a mile and a half, two miles outside of Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives to the east. We know there's Lazarus and Mary and Martha and from other gospels, we know a little bit more about them. Mary and Martha, these sisters that show up in the gospel of Luke. But we're hinted at, we're not told all the specifics, but we get the sense that Jesus knew them well. As we read through the story a number of times, we hear about how Jesus loved them. Well, we know Jesus loved everybody, but there's a sense that they were special to him. And the fact that they send for Jesus, they know where to find Jesus. Lazarus is sick, and so they send for Jesus. No, it doesn't apply. It just says, the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. There's kind of an implication behind it. Jesus, are you going to do something about this? Jesus, will you help fix it? And it goes on and it says, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And so you get the impression, well, Jesus knows something. Well, he's not, he's not that sick. He's not going to end. And there's this picture of being for God's glory and there's something else going on. But the story goes on and Jesus doesn't go right away, which seems kind of a strange thing because if you send for someone to heal, you would expect that they're going to go right away. If Jesus loved Lazarus, why does he wait around? And Jesus kind of has this mysterious way of saying, he said, well, it's for God's glory. In other words, Jesus listens to other voices too. There's been other stories in the gospel of John earlier on. We read a story of Jesus at a wedding and his mother comes to him and says, do something. And Jesus says, it's not my time. And so Jesus is saying, I listen to God the Father, and that's what guides me. He says, but this is all about what, doing what God wants. And he, in fact, says that it will, his waiting will strengthen their faith. Now, there's a good chance that by the time this message reached Jesus, Lazarus was already dead. So waiting didn't make much difference. And why do I think that? Because imagine now, Mary and Martha in this little town of Bethany. Jesus is just across the Jordan, not very far away. They send a messenger to him. Say it takes a day for the messenger to reach Jesus. Then we're told Jesus waits two days, and then he takes another day to get to Bethany. Later on in the story, we're told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. So there's a good chance that it had already happened. And so here we're going into this. And so Jesus waits around for two days. And then there's this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to, going to move quickly through this. And he says, well, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples are concerned. But there's people there who want you. And then he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, oh, well, if he's sleeping, sleeping is good for him. Because we know that. It's one of the best cures when you're sick, Right? to rest a while. So if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not what I meant. Because they would often use that metaphor of sleep, not simply to refer to physical sleep, but to sleep as death. And Jesus says, well, no, okay. Let me put it plainly. 
Lazarus is dead. I like that. So he told them plainly, Lazarus, this is one of the few times to me in the Gospel of John when Jesus is pretty plain and clear what he's saying. Because a lot of times you're like, what is he talking about? There's not a whole lot of mixing words, not a whole lot of confusion in Lazarus is dead. And so, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. And then you're like, okay, Jesus, you just confused me again. But he goes, so that you may believe. In other words, he's saying, there's something going on. This is all part of helping you know and helping you believe. And the story continues on, and Martha comes out to meet him. We pick up this conversation when Martha comes out. Martha, again, one of the sisters, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know now that even, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So there's this sense where Martha comes out and says this. And it's one of these times where I wish that we could get a sense of the tone of voice. That's the hard part. We hear her words, but there's a lot of different ways you can say something. Was it a sense of hope? Oh, if only you had been here. Or was it a sense of like, if you'd been here? And you can think of that the same way when we have conversations, right? It's one of the challenges in our modern age when someone sends you a text message, right? Or an email, we realize that tone of voice makes a big difference, doesn't it? That the way we say things. And so as Martha says, if only you'd been here, Jesus. But you hear this sense of grief, but also hope. If you had been here, something would have happened. There's this paradox that's going inside of her where she believes, but still there's sorrow. And we're going to come back to that. But this conversation goes back and forth. Jesus says, well, your brother will rise again. She's like, well, I, I know that. I, because she had grown up, she had been taught. She knew the expectation of the Jews that, that there was a future day, the day of the Lord, this time coming in the future when God would raise the dead. When he would bring to life his people. And so Martha said, yeah, I know there, there's going to be this day. God has promised us that, that there will be this day. And then comes this moment where it's as if Jesus puts her arms around her. He says, Martha, you're right. There is this day coming, but I need you to understand something more. I need you to see something more than that. I need you to see beyond the death of your brother. I need you to see beyond the stone that's rolled in front of the tomb. I need you to think and understand that there is something more at work than God in the future doing something. And then he says these words to her, one of the most significant words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. We can almost see Jesus taking Martha by the hand and saying, Understand this, Martha. Know this. That resurrection is not just something in the future. Resurrection is not just a doctrine to believe. Resurrection is more than an event. Resurrection is a person. It's a hope. And it's a reality. And it's not just in the future. But resurrection is now. 
That Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He is life himself. He is the source of life. It's Jesus. And what's amazing then is Martha believes this. Jesus ends, he says, do you believe this? Martha in verse 27. Yes, Lord. She replied, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. You think, oh, okay, well, she believes it. Significant because at the end of the Gospel of John, John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, all these words in the Gospel of John are written for this one single purpose. And there's one person in the Gospel of John who's described as believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Martha. She's the only one to confess these words. And so here's this declaration of hope and of faith by Martha. And so we get through this whole conversation with Martha, kind of where we ended. And then, remember there's another sister, Mary. So Martha finishes this whole conversation, which began what? If only you had been here, Jesus. So Mary comes out. And guess what she says in verse 32? When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like they're reading the same script, aren't they? There's this sense of they would have done something. But the story takes a slightly different twist then. There's not this theological debate that goes back and forth. But instead, I want us to see how Jesus responds. And a couple of things we notice. One is... Jesus never chastises these two women for their questions. When they come like, well, Jesus, if you've been here, it's like, I had better things to do, guys. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. I'll quit your whining, quit your crying. Jesus hears their questions and says nothing to them. And then the story goes on. And it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews would come along with her also weeping, he doesn't look and say, guys, what are you crying about? What's all the tears? In fact, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Two words that are significant and teach us a lot about sorrow and lament and how these things go on. That Jesus is standing here and he weeps when he sees the others weeping, when he knows that his friend is dead. And I want us to think about who Jesus is. Go back and think about who this is that John has just told us. Two simple words. Jesus wept. Now, some of you say you can't memorize scripture. Try this one as a starter, okay? Jesus wept. Because there is a lot that goes on in that verse. You think, well, two words. How much can I get out of two words? A lot. A lot. So first of all, who is Jesus that John has told us? We turn back to the opening verses of John. This is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. In other words, everything that has life and the breath of life was made by Jesus. Jesus is a source of breath and life. Later on, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So who is Jesus? Jesus is life. He's the source of life. He's the giver of life. He's the one through whom life comes. And just a few minutes before, what has he told Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. So now, first word of the sentence, Jesus, 
is the source of life. He's the giver of life. He's the one who maintains life. He is the resurrection, and he is the life. And my guess is, doesn't tell us this, but I think it's a pretty safe bet. Jesus knew what he was just about to do. He'd already told the disciples earlier, what? This isn't going to end in death. Jesus didn't go to the tomb thinking, well, well, what am I going to do now? I don't know what to do. Jesus, I think it's safe to assume, comes to the tomb, comes to all these people weeping with the full knowledge that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet, what does he do? He weeps. He cries. And what we see is that here is another description of Jesus that God, John has given us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. So Jesus is who? God in the flesh. So who then is there at the tomb weeping? God in the flesh weeping. And I think this is significant when we think about it. When I was younger, there was a popular thing in the churches, um, these little bracelets that people would wear. What would Jesus do? I don't know if you remember WWJD, and it kind of comes and goes. And it was just like, my question is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in the presence of death? He wept. And so when I think about this, to lament, to weep, is to honor God. And now, sometimes we come to church, we hope to get words of encouragement. Sometimes, pastor, going to lift us up. I might bother a few of you right now, so just preparing you, kind of a warning. Because what I think is going on here is something else. And I want to say it this way, to not lament is to not honor God. To lament is to honor God and not lament is honor God because God is the giver of life. God is the one who has given life and death is a violation of that shalom. Shalom is this sense of the way things are, the way things are supposed to be. So to grieve is to honor God because what God has given, what God has created has been broken and has been destroyed. When we're standing in the presence of death, there is this rightful thing we should do and say, this is not the way it is supposed to be. The book of Revelation is this picture of there will be a time when there is no more mourning, there is no more death, no more crying. But that's a picture in the future. And it's saying that's the right order of things. That's the way it's supposed to be. So when there is death in the world, that is not the way it's supposed to be. That is not God's ultimate plan. And what I want us to remember that the belief in God's power does not make it wrong to grieve. Grief is an expression of love. Yet, my experience has told me the church has started trying not to grieve. I've had numerous conversations with pastors over the last few years. And we've talked to it. We talk about lots of different things. Sometimes we talk about sports, sometimes about movies, but also sometimes we talk about churches. We talk about the struggles and things we're noticing, patterns and the way things are going. And one of the things that's come up in a number of different conversations is a change in the way funerals and death is handled in churches. And one of the things is oftentimes a move away from a funeral to, we call it a celebration of life. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want people wearing black to my thing. I want bright colors at my funeral. 
I don't want anyone crying at my funeral. We don't want it to be a sad thing. And I think there's something fundamentally going wrong when we say that. Because death is a violation of life. Jesus wept at the tomb, and we should weep too at grief. It's not a denial. We're going to come back to that. It's not a denial of the power of the resurrection. Sometimes we think, oh, I can't cry because I know he's in a better place. I can't cry because I know she's with Jesus. I can't. Yes, you can. Jesus stood there at the tomb knowing that in a few minutes, not in a thousand years in the future, but just in a few minutes, he was going to call out in a voice. Lazarus was going to come out, unwrap the grave clothes, and be alive. And still, he wept. Why do we think we can't do the same? We have to be allowed. We can't be afraid of our grief. Having hope in the resurrection doesn't take away the grief. In fact, I would say this. The church is the very right place to grieve. Sometimes we think, well, I'll go home and cry, but I don't want to do that in church. Church is the right place to grieve because the story we're telling is not just about grief, but also about life. Because that's the part I just told. Because what does Jesus do a few verses down? He calls Lazarus out from the tomb. And Lazarus, who had been dead, and the story says he had been dead for four days. And I mentioned that earlier. You think, well, that's kind of insignificant. For four days in the tomb for the Jewish people was a significant number. Because at that point, there was a sense in their beliefs that the spirit had departed. There was no coming back from that. And so when he said he'd been in the tomb four days, it was saying, no, he was really dead. And so here's this sense of Jesus calls him out from the tomb. He's literally dead. It's not just a nice story about, well, Jesus has the power to like, you know, take our hopes out of the thing. I mean, there's that sense too where Jesus takes bad situations and turns them to good and turns things around that seem like they're not going. But here we are talking about someone who is literally and physically dead. When Jesus is raised from the dead by God, he is dead. He's been laid in the tomb and the, the Roman soldier has pierced his side and confirmed, no, that he is physically dead. He's not just passed out. He's not just swooning. He's not just kind of in a coma. He is dead and he's laid in a tomb and God raises him from the dead. When we confess the creed and say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. It's saying there is a resurrection of bringing to life, not just of our hopes and our dreams, but of our literal physical body that is gone. And so it's talking about the true power over death. And so grief is an appropriate response, but it's a grief informed by the resurrection. So I was think about that. I'm giving you permission. In fact, well, no, I'm not going to go that far. I'm gonna, not going to order you. I'm not going to tell you you have to. But don't be afraid to grieve when someone dies. What I have seen is people try not to do that. Like, oh, I've got to hold myself together. I can't grieve because of the family. I can't grieve because the person doesn't want me to be. I'm not supposed to grieve because Jesus will raise them from the dead. Jesus showed us it's okay. And something happens when you try and hold that grief in, when you try to pretend that it doesn't hurt. It comes out at some point. It will come out in unexpected places. And it's so much better to do it. And that's why I say the church is the safe place to grieve and it's the appropriate spot. But a grief informed by the resurrection. So we go back to Martha. Martha. 
And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know even now that you will give whatever you ask. And there is this confidence. It's a grief, but a confidence. A confidence in the resurrection where she says, I know we will rise again in the resurrection. And she accepts Jesus' words. Verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. So she believes what Jesus has said without having seen it yet. So it's saying that grief is okay, but we look through that to the resurrection. Death does not have the final say. The tomb cannot hold Lazarus, nor later can it hold Jesus. Jesus says there's no life apart from him. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Jesus speaks these words to us today. And you may be grieving. It may be a grief from a long ago. It may be something that happened recently. And it can be lots of different things. But in the story we hear that Jesus says grief is okay. But he also tells us that grief is okay because he is the resurrection and the life. That he has overcome those things. So we come and we express that grief when we hear the words of Jesus. This is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so his question to us is the same question he asked Martha. When he says to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live and even though they die. His question is, do you believe? Do you believe this? And he invites us to believe. And in believing him, to have life and life eternal. May we believe this day in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.